So what's this dynamite thing you were talking about? This dynamite thing, seismic. I worked seismic exploration before settling down here in Saskatoon. So what does that involve? Well, essentially what it is is a, an ultrasound of the underground. So using an array of sensors on the surface, we use an energy source such as dynamite or uh, fibrosize. And we uh, basically put sound into the ground. Certain frequencies bounce off of certain layers. And we record the data using the geophones on the surface. What's fibrocide? So it's uh, vibrocide is like uh, basically they're big ass trucks. We call them vibes, vibrators. And they go, they're anywhere from like maybe the size of a dump truck would be like a small one. And then like there's, there's ones that are like, I've got a picture of me standing next to a tire that's like taaller than me. I'm not particularly tall, but it's like much, much bigger than me. Massive, massive. <laughs> just a single tire. Yeah. Just one tire out of four. Yeah. And so these things, they, uh, they've got a big hydraulic pad in the center of them. And so if we're doing a vibro size job instead of a dynamite job, They'll go from point to point on the surface, putting these pads down and shaking. Wait, what's point to point on the surface? When we're, when we're doing a seismic survey, put it together, basically the way the project works is picture, picture like a grid, like a square grid for simplicity. And most of them are fairly square except for certain points. Now picture lines going, say, north-south and east-west. And say every 100 meters there's another line going east to west. you got a north-south line. You go east 100 meters, there's another line. East 100 meters, there's another line going north-south. And then on each line, say these are the receiver lines going north-south. Every 50 meters, there's a geophone on every line. So, like, the areas get quite large. Sometimes thousands of geophones are listening all at the same time. Now, the way we use our energy there is we go, usually it's crosswise. So if the lines, the receiver lines are north-south, then in this case, the source lines would be east-west. And it's the same thing. So you got east-west lines now going, say, 100 meters. And then you're, you're north, there's another line going east-west. North, there's another line east-west. And same thing, there'll be points every 50 meters going east-west where there's either going to be dynamite drilled in the ground that needs to be set off or a vibe point that needs to be shaken. And so they take these... Uh, these images, they put this, uh, they put the sound in the ground and the geophones, they listen, they record the data and they go from point to point, east to west, and then south to north or north to south or whatever direction you want to go. But essentially you end up with this square grid with receiver points and source points all intersecting. Well, not necessarily intersecting, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, on the, the so on the north, south will generally be only receivers and then on the east, west will be the power source the energy source yeah energy yeah source. yeah so and and it doesn't have to be like always that way they can be the reverse and what direction you go just for just for the simplicity of explanation though yeah the lines like the picture the lines going east to west the lines going north south but would yeah. you intersperse a energy source with a receiver on the same line we've done that before yep yeah we call those mega bins oh really yeah, yeah. and it's essentially the same thing i don't really know uh, however, they say it's the the projects are created by uh, I 
geophysicists and however they want to set it up. There's all kinds of different parameters. The amount of energy going into the ground, the depth of the dynamite, the charge of the dynamite, if there is the spacing of the receiver lines or the spacing of the geophones, all all these different parameters are created by the geophysicists based on the type of ground where the exploration is going on, based on the type of resource that client company may be looking for. So then you've set this up. What goes into the setup? Oh my, it's it's actually a complex operation. It's and it's weird that it can be so complex and yet so unheard of. Most of the crews I've been on are between 30 and 60 people, I would say. You've got linesmen who put the geophones down, you've got troubleshooters that come up behind the linesmen to make sure all the equipment is functioning properly. You've got shooters and or vibe ops who manage the energy sources. Uh, you've got a coordinator that manages the lines crew. Uh, typically, we use a helicopter to get the gear out to the line crews in the field because the jobs are so large. And a lot of times trying to, like we can get the gear out with trucks or uh, sleds, UTVs, quads, all these different types of tools, but driving back and forth takes a lot of time. And depending on the landscape, you might not even quite be able to do that, right? We work in lots of broken landscape, uh, lots of rough terrain, bushes, stuff like that, where there might not be as much access. So a lot, most of the jobs I've been on, they use a helicopter to fly the gear out to the guys that are working on the line. So what that means for the linesman is like, you, you got yourself and your partner, or back in the old days, your crew. It used to be, it's changed since I started. When I first started, there used to be five people on a line crew, and it was all like cables attached to batteries and boxes with the geophones, and it was really, it was all a live, connected system, right? Now, it's uh, it, the technology is gotten a little bit more advanced each node records individually so it doesn't require quite as complex of a system to set up now and it's easier it requires less gear and less people to do it so now typically you've got two people on a line crew the gear that the line crew uses would usually consist of a box which is essentially a computer with uh, digital storage and it runs the equipment. It's very small, foot by foot square, roughly, maybe a little smaller than that and fairly light. And so there'll be a battery that'll plug into that to run it. And then a geophone will be plugged into that and then placed into the ground. There are some geophones that we have to use like a, uh, we call it a stomping pole. It's like a long metal steel pole with a, an insert on the end and you put the geophone into it and then you like spear it into the ground. Oh, and how that, deep do you have to get it? Uh, you just, yeah, there's a, there's a metal jacket about, so there's a spike on the bottom, maybe three inches long, give or take. And then there's a, like a, a metal jacket where, where the actual geophone is. So usually you're trying to bury that whole spike into the ground and get just the tip of that jacket into the ground. But when it's frozen, that's not always possible. Sometimes you got to spear it in and then whack it down a few times. So you're working it in all weather. All weather. Yeah. All terrains. A lot of the work that I've done in the last five years or so has been mostly farm yards. So a lot of flat prairie stuff going on, you know, trying to get around bushes and maneuvering around fences and animals and stuff like that. But I have also been in the mountains. I've been in valleys. Yeah. Oh, hey, Lots so bush. you were talking about before there were all these cables, but mm -hmm. now you, you can record individually. Mm -hmm. How was it before? Well, before it was was really cool. Actually, it was a lot of fun before because everything was connected. It was it was a live network. Picture internet without Wi-Fi, right? You unplug your cord. You remember the days of the old uh, Ethernet and the phone? Yeah, yeah. 
picture those days or whatever, you unplug that cord and you're no longer on the network anymore, right? So everything used to be connected live back in the day. So if there was like a few thousand channels that you wanted to have listening, they were all connected via cables all down every line. And then there was, so like, you remember how I was kind of saying, uh, say, say, for example, your receiver lines are running north-south. Down these receiver lines, you'd have a cable going all the way down and they'd be connected to boxes and batteries and other cables all the way down this line. And then there'd be spots in the cable where you plug in strings of geophones. So you'd have um, a couple guys walking down the line unlimbering these big cables. So they're like, I don't know, 40 pound cables, give or take. And you'd have two people just dedicated to doing cables. They'd, and the helicopter bags that the gear would come in would be huge, like too heavy for multiple people to lift, like huge. I mean, like 400 some pounds of gear. So you'd have a couple cables, you'd have eight strings of six geophones. They would be like on pins. So you'd have eight geophones all connected with a giant black cable on a pin, which was quite heavy in itself. And there'd be eight of those in a bag and two big, massive 30, 40 pound cables, a box and a battery. And those boxes were much bigger than the new ones. The new ones are small now. They're they're like foot by foot square, but like actually not, uh, not cubed though. It would be like maybe two inches wide. Like they're pretty, pretty thin. Oh, uh, really? The old boxes were like, oh, I want to say foot long by eight inches wide and then maybe another six inches deep like they're pretty big the spots where those would stay would be the heli bag drop so they would stay there unless you're in rough terrain and the helicopter couldn't get the bag in the area so you'd have to drag that stuff into where you had to get it what's this pin you're talking about that the geophones are on yeah so picture like uh, an oversized paper clip almost and it would you'd you'd open it the same way right so it would come it would be it would be locked or whatever so that the contents wouldn't spill out. And so you get this string, you'd unclip it when you got to your spot, and then so you've got 20, 25 meters, give or take, of black cable, and every few meters there'd be a geophone, right? And so for, for those cable systems, particularly it's all analog signal going up the cable. So all the geophones that are plugged into the cable, it's an analog signal while it goes from the geophone into the cable and down the cable into the box and the box would convert it to a digital cable and then send that up to the recorder. So the geophones, what, what you do, they would be uh, strung up a specific way so that when you came up to your spot to take them off the clip, you'd pull off the geophone, you'd take a bunch of the black cable, throw it out nice so you could spread it out and then walk a few feet, throw your next geophone and pull off your cable, right? And you'd, essentially what you'd be doing if you were one of the guys responsible for getting those geophones out is just spacing these out properly and then putting the cable kind of nicely off the walking path for the next guy, which is the guy who would have that stomp and pull that I mentioned. And he'd be picking up each geophone, slamming it into the ground as he comes by. You just set it in a general area and then he'll come in and actually place it. Yeah, back then when the uh, gear was all done with the cable systems, there was five people on a crew. So you would have two people doing the cables and then you would have three people managing the geophones and every crew did it a little bit different most of the crews i was working on you would have two people would carry the geophones and space them out and get them ready for one guy in the back who would come up behind make sure everything was plugged in properly and put the geophones into the ground he'd be the last guy up back then how coordinated would you guys be a really good crew the best crews i was ever on we never necessarily had assigned jobs it would just be you do what you come to Right, So everybody's constantly either working or catching up and then passing by the next person and going to the next job. So like really good veterans, the name for this kind of labor is called jug hound. 
So a good jug hound is capable of doing what they come to and not walking by gear, right? So you want to maintain a decent walking pace so that you didn't get made fun of. And <laughs> other than that, you would come up to whatever needed to be done. If it was a cable or if it was a sets of geophones and you would get them ready for the next guy up and good jug hounds would always try to set up the line for the guy behind them a really well-oiled crew was awesome because you know if you're laying out all this gear really nice right the troubleshooters got to come up behind this crew now and if the cables are just a wreck spread out like shit right say we're on sleds it's winter time and you're in the bush and there's cables all throughout the fucking path all the way along you got to constantly get up and move the cables you're catching cables with your skis you're running them over you're running over geophones you got to fix them it's a pain in the ass right so good crew has it set up perfectly easy to pass through for the next guy and also easy for the pickup crews that come by after the line's been cleared meaning it's no longer in use. It's no longer needed to be like uh, when we're recording a seismic job, it's done in patches. So say 14 lines by 150 stations would be a patch. And you kind of move through the job as you're putting down the gear, using the energy source, whether it's dynamite or vibra size, and then picking it up off the back. Cause you normally wouldn't have enough gear, especially back in those days to just put all the gear down, shoot through the entire job and then pick it all back up again. You'd normally have to like, do you'd have to lay out say 14 lines or something like that and then the shooters or the vibro vibe ops are working their way up to that point then lines are getting cleared off the back and then they're being picked up off the back laid out on the front and shot through in the middle while they're being troubleshot yeah so it's constantly getting set up torn down mm-hmm. set up torn down and then yep. recording section by section yep that cool. that jug hound thing you're talking about yeah that's so everybody on the crew knows every single role then that's right yep and you're taking care of your work and you're taking pride in it and then the next guy you're setting it up for him and then he wants to set up for the last guy exactly exactly and that's how you determine (laughs) that's how you that's how you figure out the hierarchy there's good jug hounds who do that there's not so good jug hounds who don't give a shit they just go out there they're they want their paycheck and they don't work that hard necessarily take a lot of breaks they don't set up the lines properly you know sometimes you take what you can get especially in a job where you work 13 hours a day seven days a week there are no days off especially in those days it's gotten a lot better now with the safety regulations and the clients we have nowadays are you know they've come a long ways with their safety as well but but back then yeah it was you could you get time off and stuff like that if you want but you know usually after six or eight weeks of working say but you're really holding yourself accountable on that 12th, 13th hour, terrible conditions for yourself and your teammates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in uh, with hours like that uh, and a job like that, we work every day. We are paid for the commute to and from the site, which is awesome. I don't think I could have done that job without it, to be completely honest. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like you've been working, say, 11 and a half hours. You're shutting her down 12 hours. You got an hour drive back to the hotel and the weather's coming in, right? I've had a lot of long days where at the end of the day, you know, it starts snowing or coming down hard and you got to make it back to the hotel alive. How much stress are you under? Honestly, I was never under a whole lot of stress um, in most of my time being there. I, I was in the first couple of years because of trying to figure it out. And I'm, I'm a kind of an ambitious guy. So I want to learn the next step and move up, learn the next step, move up. And there was a pretty, there was quite a bit of a ladder when I first got in there because of that. I'll go over that a little bit later. But once I sort of figured it out, figured out the job, it's really not too complicated if you 
have the drive to learn and to be in a team player. And after that, the stress really came down. Like the only one who knows what you can handle out there is you, right? So when you're working seven days a week, 13 hours a day, you got to figure out your pace that you can handle, right? And everybody starts to figure out after a while that people can only handle so much. So if you're giving her too hard, you know, I work with a lot of guys that gave her too hard and fell apart after a few weeks or a month and went nuts, you know, drinking and getting sent home because they can't sleep and they, you know, get messed up and drugs and stuff like that. So you got to manage your fatigue because oh, you're yeah. on there for the long haul. Yes. Yeah. How long did it take you to figure out your pace? It took me a few years. What was, what was unexpected when you first started the job? When I first started the job, I went pretty hard, especially it was the cable days, right? And the cable days were a lot harder. It was a lot of walking. Like nowadays, individually recording nodes that we have now, you can put them all on a machine. So you take two guys out with a UTV or quads or sleds and a little trailer, you know, you can move a lot of gear really quickly. Back in those days, when I first started the cable jobs that we did, all the line crews were on foot. So you'd get dropped off, you'd hike into where your first bag was, helicopters would bring the gear in and you'd be walking all day long and you're hauling this gear and the, the geophones like, um, Depending on how you did it, on the cruise that I worked on, you'd have one person muling the geophones, so they'd be taking five or six strings of geophones, which is probably about 80 pounds, and now you got your backpack on with your water and your food, and you got your winter gear on because it's minus 35 outside, and it's, you know, up maybe knee height, waist deep snow in some areas, so you're dragging this stuff through the snow trying to stay ahead of the people behind you, right? So as the mueller, you'd be bringing out this gear and dropping off the sets at every station. And then the person behind them would come in and unstring them. Different crews did it different ways. Sometimes you'd have two people just doing four and four and they would mule their own sets and, you know, unstring their own sets. And then the stomper would come up behind them. The crews I was on, we always did it with a mueller because it was harder, but it was more efficient. Wait, what's four on four? Uh, four would be, so there was eight strings, eight sets of geophones with the cable systems that I used. So if you had three people on geophones, you could have two people each taking four sets. And so they could take four sets each and there's eight stations between each bag that was dropped off. So between the two people, four and four sets, you would go out to, you know, you, they would leapfrog set, uh, stations and unstring those geophones. And then the, the third guy would have the stomp and pull and he would come up behind and just stomp the geophones into the ground. So that way is a little easier, but not as efficient. Yes, I would say, yeah, yeah. And, and the reason why it's easier and not so efficient is because if one person is carrying four strings and undoing four strings, the stomper behind them can usually catch up to that first guy before he's done, and he's kind of waiting on him. And then he comes up to the next set, and they're all ready to go. Now he's four sets behind. It's kind of this like log jam, too much to do, log jam, too much to do, log jam, too much to do. Whereas when we did it with the Mueller and one person unstringing the phones and then a stomper, your Mueller would have all the phones set up. And then if a person was really good at unstringing those phones, they were just gone. So the stomper would take one or two sets at the start of the day just to let the other guys get ahead and then basically wouldn't see them until they took a break. So what makes your way more difficult though? Well, the uh, person taking five or six strings of geophones is, is hard. Like I said, they got about 70 or 80 pounds on their back with the geophones, you know, and like, I wish I could show you a picture because six or seven phone, six or seven sets of phones over your back is like, there's black cable everywhere. You can't see. Oh man. Oh yeah. It's a lot of gear. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it's very hard for that person. And usually when you first start, if you're mule and you only take five sets, four or five sets, 
and you kind of divvy it up until you can get up to six, seven cents. I knew people that would take eight and like, that's a lot with your gear, with your winter gear and going through the snow and stuff like that. Sometimes up and down hills. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. So there's guys that take eight sets and they do this for 13 hours. Mm-hmm. So you don't change your Mueller. No. Well, some crews did, but a lot of times we didn't. We would do it maybe day in, day out. You know what I mean? Like if someone had been mewing for a few days and wanted to switch, they would switch. Or or you could do it day by day. But no, when I first started Seismic, I muled every day for weeks. And then then I started, um, that's kind of the, remember how I mentioned a sort of hierarchy? Well, <laughs> in the cable days, when you first started on a lens crew, you were muling. And if you survive that, then you learn how to unstring geophones. And if you're good at it, which you usually get good at, because when you first start off mule and sets, it sucks. And you don't want to do that for very long. And then, then you start, you know, being able to unstring them fast. If you can keep up, if you can stay ahead of the stomper, people want you doing that job. A lot of people can't stay ahead of the stomper, right? So if you're on a good crew and that stomper is on your ass, then he's kind of pissed off. He wants to go. He wants to go. Give her, right? Get to the next, get to, you know, four or five bags, get to that you know, get to that break, have a drink, have a smoke, that kind of thing. Everybody's kind of racing to the next, the next break, right? So you get good at unstringing those phones. You don't got to carry so much, right? And then you go from there to doing the cables. The cables suck at first. They really suck. It's heavy. 40 pounds or something like that. You got to carry it on one arm. Remember, knee, waist deep snow. And you got to unwind this cable bit by bit all the way to the end. And then now... There's two cables in a bag, right? So when you get to a bag, first guy that gets to that first cable that gets to that bag grabs the cable and has to skip four stations. So they got to carry this cable. Depending on the the distance, I would say it could be 200 meters plus, which doesn't seem like a whole lot. But when you're in deep snow and you're walking all day long and you got a 40-pound cable with your backpack and your winter gear, it's a lot. It is a lot because you're off balance and you have to keep things neat and you have to be precise with your location then mm-hmm. so how yep. are you how do you keep your We're navigation back so um every station out there especially in those days we use a lot more gps now but back then before we had this we had a paper map and every station is marked with a wooden lath so the receiver lines would have an orange lath at every station whether you wanted to put your geophones down so then you'd know where to start yeah yeah but in that deep snow how's the visibility uh usually you can see them okay yeah the lath is about four and a half feet like the surveys would be let's say a few weeks behind the recording crews but they're usually not so far behind that the lath is buried in snow by the time you get there so if it is deep snow they've often surveyed it after it started snowing so they're still popping out mm-hmm. yeah when you were the mueller mm-hmm. what made it so you kept going at the time, I had worked in retail for four and a half years, and you can't really do much on a retail wage, right? So I couldn't afford to drive. I was, you know, working out lots and stuff like that. I had to walk or run. I tried to take the bus every now and then, but it's a long, it's a long commute to take the bus, you know? So I, I lived my life living fairly uh, poor, I guess you could say. And, you know, but trying to have a good attitude and work my way up and stuff like that. And after a few incidences of being held back or not, seeing the opportunity there i eventually quit and uh, my old man actually has been doing seismic since he was about 16 and he still does it so i finally asked him i was like okay i've had enough of this retail shit and i'll get me a real job i want to go into the bush and i want to see what this seismic is about and he was like yeah i'll put you in touch with the right people so what pushed you over the edge with retail well Kind of a big, kind of a long story there, but I'll, I'll get into the, I'll get into the gist of it. I will say though, uh, I was a supervisor in retail for a couple of years as a 
uh, lead unloader in the back room. Basically, I was a lead unloader. They came up with this new position or whatever, which I filled for a couple of years, and it was actually a lot of fun. I really liked it. I I was in charge of about 12 to 14 people unloading trucks, bringing stock out to the floor, and delegating responsibilities, cleaning up the back room, uh, managing stock in the back room, getting it out to the floors. When we were all finished, sort of managing my guys and how we were going to help the store in other ways. I ended up leaving that store for a different one. Um, I moved to another province, uh, got involved with a girl there, and that store was uh, not so, I don't know what it was about the people there. Uh, the, the store where I was a supervisor in, I was friendly with everybody. Everybody worked well together, team players. You know, I felt like um, everybody was trying to lift each other up. This other store that I went to, it felt like people were more sort of stabbing each other in the back and bringing each other down. Uh, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Um, Just the whole atmosphere was toxic. Yeah, exactly. So I applied for a job in Rexall Pharmacy. Uh, I seen a position come up that was perfectly suited to me. It was a backroom experience. We want one person to come in, take care of the backroom, do the stock and do the stuff for the store. I was like, sweet. Okay. A lot less stress, more pay. Like, let's do it. So I applied for that position went through like three interviews. I got in, was super stoked. There was uh, apparently a few hundred applicants and I had gotten in. So I was super excited to have that job. Um, I worked my ass off in, in that place. I I uh, went in there, their back room was a mess. I revamped the whole back room. I took care of a lot of stock issues that they had, you know, and once I revamped the back room, I got bored. So I started taking on extra responsibilities, doing cashier stuff, delegating work to the cashiers. Uh, after a while, um, I started getting the bug, sort of being like, what can I do next? I'd like to move up, move on. What can I learn? And they had, they started having me doing cash, opening and closing the store, uh, ordering stock, sending stock back, like doing quite a bit of the managerial duties, right? And what the, the last straw for me was they opened up another store uh, kind of across this town. And you know, throughout all of this, I've never made more than, say, I think at that store, the most I was making was twelve fifty an hour. So still barely getting by. Meanwhile, you know, keeping a good head on my shoulders, good attitude. Let's, let's learn. Let's move up. You know, I want to get into this manager role eventually. You know, I'll, it'll all be worth it kind of thing. So they opened up this other store and uh, they hired more staff for that, which which was which was cool. I had no interest in working in that store. It was too far away for me to run to anyway. So did that job like that for a few months. And one of the assistants at my store quit. And I was like, ooh, hey, maybe there'll be an opportunity here. And, you know, I wasn't expecting anything, but I did ask, like, manager's gone. Is this open up a position? How do I show my interest? Who do I talk to? What do I got to do to be considered for this? They kind of gave me the runaround a little bit, which, okay, yeah. Um, but at least they know I'm interested, right? So surely they'll say something when the time comes few months later, nothing happening. I was curious because I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of extra duties, not being paid more for it and kind of, you know, looking for some kind of a direction or path, not wanting to be taken advantage of either. And I brought it up to the manager, uh, you know, like what's happening? What's, I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything posted, you know, no interviews. What's the plan with this position? And he was, he told me, uh, well, store's not doing so good financially. We're still losing money. Okay, fair. Uh, what the plan was turned out was they were going to take an assistant manager from the other store and make them a swing manager between both stores and they weren't going to fill the position that was vacated. So I said, okay, well, what's going to be the plan for what I'm doing right now then? Because I'm, I, you know, I'm happy to know all of what I'm doing here, but like, 
what, what does this mean for me? And he was like, well, we're going to keep the position that you have the way it is now. And that'll be how it is. And I was like, okay, so is this going to come with a pay raise? And he's like, no. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll be right back. I wrote down my two weeks notice on a paper napkin and I gave it to him that day. Dude, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You were running to work? Well, that particular store wasn't too far away, but yeah, that's, I mean, four and a half years in retail, I think maybe five years in retail. And that was basically how I got to work every day was either running or walking. So you're hoofing it to work, giving yep. your all, and they give you the freaking runaround. Yep. And I wasn't too happy about that. And I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe my attitude wasn't as good as I thought it was. Maybe there was some things that I missed, but uh, either way, you know, no, I was at not, the end. No, no, it wasn't your freaking attitude because clearly your actions spoke louder than your attitude. I like to think so. They just didn't care. Yeah, that seems to be the, uh, that was the general feeling and atmosphere in, uh, in retail. So I had to get out, try something new. Man, that's so good you got out. Thanks. Yeah. So then you're doing the Mueller and you're like, yeah. I'm not going back to that crap. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, when I was out there, when I was, you know, as, as bad as stuff ever got. And let me tell you, it was some rough days. Like I've been out in minus 35 before, but like sweating enough that when we stopped for a break, like just, just steam coming off of me and minus 35, like, holy crap. But then you take a break and freeze and then you're like, Oh God, I got to get moving again, but I'm tired. So you're tired and cold and you know, whatever else. Sometimes it's too cold to stop to eat. So you eat something quick or, you know, you drink some water and you keep going on. But I don't know, after a while, you, if I found an equilibrium that I felt good, even though there was some physical suffering there, it wasn't that bad. And I never suffered mentally at all. So it was just the physical. What, yeah. What were you thinking while you were doing it? Oh, oh, I tell you. Well, when I got used to the job and uh, I got good at it, uh, it frees up. It actually frees up a lot of time for the mind to wander. So um, there was a few years, I would say, where a lot of the work that I did during the day was actually meditative. Like really meditative. Like I would daydream and I would think about stuff. I would be introspective. I'd have a lot of, you know, I'd have a lot of ideas. Sometimes I'd have ideas just popping into my head, but I'd never be able to write them down because I couldn't, you know, take my glove off to grab a pen and, you know, it's too cold. You can't take your gloves off, right, generally. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, there was a lot of mental growth there and some financial growth. What was the biggest lesson you learned from being a Mueller? Um, oh yeah. The biggest lesson I'd learned from being a Mueller, I would say is that when, uh, when shit sucks and there's a ladder to get yourself out of the shit, take that ladder, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I did it hard. I got good at it, but I ultimately ended up getting better at the next step, which made the job easier for me. You found your fit though, with your ambition and they rewarded you for it. Yes. Yep. Yep. I actually fairly quickly moved up to, uh, one of the favorite positions that I ever had in that industry, which was troubleshooting. So what made it your favorite? Troubleshooting was uh, slightly technical. So while being outside and on machines, there was still a lot of thought and plan that had to go into troubleshooting because you would be given, say, a list of issues in an area. And you had to figure out a way to systematically eliminate all these issues as efficiently as possible. Right. So, for example, in the cable days, there was a lot of cool things about troubleshooting cables, for example, uh, say there's a geophone not reading in a cable. Could be a problem with the geophone. Could be a problem with the cable. Could be a problem with the box that the cable's connected to. You need to go find out. And sometimes they're shooting on that 
cable, right? They could shoot on a on an open channel here and there, right? Ultimately, they want to clean up everything so they can give as clear of a picture as possible. Okay. So there's yeah. one malfunctioning unit. Who knows about it? Um, so in the cable days, everything was connected to the network, like I said. Um, there was a small trailer, if you will, uh, attached to a big truck. Almost, if you can picture it, picture like a um, fairly big truck with like, imagine like a, a camper on the back, but it's like a work trailer with a generator on it. Okay. Now in this trailer, you've got uh, a huge computer system. I mean, like three and a half feet tall by two feet wide by two and a half feet long, like massive computer humming, <sighs> like almost enough to warm up the shack on a, on a, you know, not too cold of a day and a generator running out, out back to keep everything powered up. Now you got cables running into and out of that recorder and everything on that job that's live is going through that recorder. We used to call it the dog box and his system, his computer system can show him the whole network. So he can see every geophone, every cable, every box, every battery. When it was live, it was pretty cool. They had a scope. You could see, you could if, if they pulled up the scope, so you could see it a lot as a troubleshooter, especially because you'd spend a lot of time in there, you know, checking it out. Or if, if everything was good on the spread, you'd go back there. So you'd be ready to be dispatched or if anything came loose or came out. So we'd kind of hang out there after we fixed the whole spread. Uh, anyways, this scope, you could see the geophones. You could see the amount of noise going off on each geophone. So like on a dynamite job, when you see the dynamite shock off, you could see the scope just light up starting from the center of the shot and spreading it, its way out. Oh, so yeah. you can see it ripple right out from yep. that center yep. of where they set it off. Yep, exactly. So that's what the scope is? or uh, it, is Yeah, scope? so essentially what the scope is, it's like, a, it's like a live monitoring of the sensors on the surface that are connected, right? And so the purpose of the scope, as far as I understood, it was basically twofold. One is that it could be looked at and you could determine if the spread was too noisy. Say you're... I did a job in in Saskatchewan here, not too far from Saskatoon, about five or six years back, where there was a train track in the middle of the spread. That train will wipe out those sensors. You will not catch very much data from a dynamite shot or a vibral size if a train is rolling over the spread. For trains in particular, there's usually a train watch now because we don't have any scopes. It's not live anymore. Since each node records individually now, it's just putting its spot, turned on and recording at all times. So you can't really see what's going on. We're not connected to it. But back when everything was connected by cables, you could see everything. So they could determine how much noise was at each geophone. And generally, you weren't looking at like individual geophones because, you know, if there's a few thousand of them, there's a lot to watch for. But you could keep your eye on the scope and you would see an area lighting up with, say, too much noise. And maybe you'd investigate that, right? So when you say noise, you mean interference or something that you are not creating yep exactly so exactly that and those the sensors are, are are very sensitive like you could turn up the sensitivity on those things and you could hear a cat walking across the ground by a geophone you like if it's raining for example if it's raining too hard it's too noisy you shouldn't be recording right depending on the geophones and the land and the ground and what you're looking for like there's a lot of different factors that determine whether or not you could shoot on that but i've certainly been on jobs before where too much rain rain's coming down too hard you can't shoot trains can't shoot helicopters flying over the spread can't shoot so you have to wait for proper conditions mm -hmm. and the shooting is you're blowing something up or you're mm -hmm. running the vibra vibra size yeah vibes yeah vibes we just call them vibes okay yeah then what was the best part about the 
the troubleshooting. So the troubleshooting, um, yeah, the troubleshooting was like you'd have. Uh, oh wow, I went on a huge tangent there. From that, <laughs> hey. I did have, a, I did have a point with the troubleshooting. No, but, but that was great information. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, so troubleshooting, uh, a basic troubleshooting would be, you know, I'd get a call on the radio. Hey, Brandon, I need you to head to line X and station four. There's a geophone out uh, on that, on that cable. Okay, or they'd say, you know, station three is out. Okay, so I'd go to the third string of geophones on that cable, unplug the geophones from the cable, I pull out my multimeter and test the resistance of the phones. So if the resistance was half or zero or way too high, something wrong with that string of geophones, that's an easy fix. I change out that string with a new string, good to go. Okay, sends me to that station. Station two's out, go check it out. So I go there and I pull out my multimeter. and oh, It's reading perfectly fine. What the heck? Geophone's fine, but it's telling him the system's telling him that it's messed up. Okay, plug it back in. Okay, go back to the go back to the box. Call my observer. Hey, are you shooting on this cable right now? Say yes or no, right? If he said no, no problem. Unplug the cable. I could meter the string of geophones through the cable. There's pairs, different pairs for each geophone. Stacked string up of geophones in that one cable in the cable head yeah there would be four per cable two cables between two bags so there'd be four per cable and you'd have four pairs you'd have to know which ones to meter right and then you'd also have there's a line where the digital signal comes through and you could check that too if you had a if you had an error there but the geophones yeah you'd be like metering the right pairs you'd have to know which pairs right some people had cheat sheets and eventually you figure it out you memorize or whatever so you meter the geophones through the cable. Oh, no, I can't see it anymore. Oh, okay, well, cable's pooched. I gotta change the cable now. <laughs> the entire line? Oh, yeah, no, well, just that just that one the cable. one section. That one cable, yeah, four geophones worth, yeah. So I'd call that into my observer. Hey, yeah, I got a bad cable here, gotta change it out. And then he would say, depending on if he was using the line or not, there's different ways of changing it, right? Like if he was shooting on that line, he'd say, okay, plug it back in, set up for a quick change. So I'd plug it back in so he could keep shooting on it. And I'd, I would lay out another cable beside that cable, walk back, and if I was on a sled, you know, I'd lay out that cable, walk back on a sled. Okay, I'm ready to go for the quick change. And he'd be like, okay, go. And then you unplug that cable, plug in your cable, jump on the sled, and you'd hammer down that line as fast as you can. Unplug the first string of geophones, plug it into the next cable. Go to the next one, unplug it, replug. Next one, unplug, replug. Next one, unplug, replug. Get to the other box, unplug it, replug it in. Go, you're live. And then he'd, he'd check it out. Yep, okay, it's good now. So you just need to shoot. do it quickly because they're going <laughs> to... Yeah, well, while that's down, no re- no data is being recorded, right? On a dynamite job, the biggest thing you're afraid of on a dynamite job is blowing a shot. Dynamite's quick. Dynamite goes off, boom. The recorder listens for a few seconds and you go to the next shot. Vibral size is... Uh, it's not as quick. To stack the sounds to make it similar to a dynamite shot takes a lot more time so dynamite shot goes off all the frequencies you need to record the data you need goes into the ground immediately so you just have to record for whatever your parameters is how many seconds they want to listen and that's usually determined by the depth vibral size though they have to go through the frequencies back in those days for for example they would take two sets of vibes back to back and they would shake for eight second sweeps eight times for example, 64 seconds of shaking, and that would make one record equal to that of a dynamite shot. So fibril size, when you're troubleshooting, you're trying to 
keep the downtime to an absolute minimum because any time that you lose, you can't make up. You've got two sets of two shaking and they're shaking all night long. That's how you get paid. They're shaking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, right? Uh, if this set's shaking for a minute, hopefully that next set gets to the next shot in about a minute. And as soon as that first set picks up their pads and drives to the next one, the next set is dropping their pad and shaking. That's how you... So there's two of those five yeah. vibes driving up one and they're skipping the next one because there's yeah. two sets of them. Yeah, and they're just, yeah, going yeah. Back just and an forth. example. Yeah. yeah. And there could be three or four sets depending on the size of the job. But, but you need to time it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, you basically, you basically, you're aiming for as little downtime as possible yeah. with vibes. For dynamite, you can shoot dynamite really fast. Usually with a vibro size job, the crews are working around the vibes, keeping the vibes going constantly. So there's no downtime on a dynamite shot. It's usually the shooters that are just trying to work around the crews. So the crews are trying to work as fast as they can and get everything up and ready. And, and then the shooters go and they just hammer everything off really quickly. And then they got to wait. So you can make up for time with dynamite shot. What you can't make up for is if you're an idiot troubleshooter and you go out there and you unplug the wrong cable and it wipes out half the spread and a dynamite shot goes off. So that's what you meant by blowing a shot. Exactly. When you do that, you've blown a shot. That is a shot where half the spread is missing and you can never get that back. I mean, you could, but you'd have to, you know, you'd have to get the drillers in. You'd have to get the drillers to come back and drill another hole and put another, and then the crews would have to, like, you'd just never do oh, it. Oh, you get one expensive. shot at the dynamite. Yeah. Because they've, somebody else sets it in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Before the recording crew ever shows up, the surveyors have come through. They've put all the lath down. They've marked off all the trails and all the accesses. And the drillers, if it's a dynamite job, have come in and drilled all of the holes and placed all the dynamite into the ground. So your favorite part of troubleshooting was you had to do it quick and correctly. So that was one aspect of it. Well, that was fun. Another thing that I liked about it, though, was that like, if you were good at it, it would really show. You could go in in the morning and get a big list of problems. And if you were really good at troubleshooting, you could fix a lot of those problems really quickly. And then you could call the observer and be like, hey, check out my list. See what's wrong. Right. And then he'd look through and be like, yeah, that's good. Good, good, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The only thing that was left was the station three at, you know, wherever X line here. You know, if you got 14 numbers and two or three of them didn't come back good, then okay, that wasn't too bad. Green troubleshooters often would go up. They'd have a list of, you know, 11 or 12 and they'll call the observer at every single station before they leave. Oh, to check, make sure. Yeah, because they're correct. not sure. They don't know if it's got it, they got it right or not, right? The way troubleshooters worked back then is that if you knew what was wrong, you could take your knowledge and run with it and fix that stuff and work around the crew, you know, work around the dynamite or the vibes or whatever. You don't have to check in. You yeah, exactly. But technically, the observer and the recorder could do all the troubleshooting himself and just micromanage a person. Like oh. a green troubleshooter, for example, the observer could say, Hey, Brandon, I need you to go to line 107, station 114. There's a phone set reading high. So I go on over there. I'm a green troubleshooter. I have no idea what I'm doing. I go up to the spot and I say, yep, I'm here. And he says, okay, unplug that geophone, plug it back in. So you unplug it, plug it back in. Yep, that's done. Then he checks his system. No, it's still reading high. Change out that set. Okay, so you change out that set and you call him again. How's that look? Nope, still reading high. Change that cable. You know what I mean? You got to run through a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. He can talk you through it, right? You could literally just be a body or you figure it out. And then, yeah. And, and then you just you, do it. You get in your rhythm. Exactly. And oh. that was what I liked a lot about it because 
I like to learn and figure it out. And I like to be as productive as a member of the team as possible. Like my, when I worked for an observer or for a coordinator for that matter on the line, whatever it is, I want them to be able to give me all the information that I need. And then I want to go out and do my job and not bother them. Yeah. Right? Well, you've got your objective for everything you need to do in the day. Mm-hmm. And then you decide how you're going to do it mm-hmm. and you don't have to check in at all because exactly. you can problem solve. Exactly. And that was where I really sort of, you know, I gained a lot of independence. Sorry, I learned a lot about my own, um, well, your own system integrity. Yeah. That you exactly. could develop, mm-hmm. but all, yeah, the integrity as well, where you want to do a great job, even though nobody's really watching you, you could always, yeah. you always have that safety net mm-hmm. of calling in, but you don't want to use the safety. Net. No, I want to be reliable, right? I want to <laughs> be the kind of person that's like, you give me a big list of stuff and you don't got to worry about me. And then they can, they can manage the, the guys out there who do need that micromanager and that help. And like, an observer back in those days could have five, six, seven troubleshooters, you know, eight shooters could have 15, 20 people working under them, depending on the size of the job. Or if there's a bunch of vibes, you know, yeah. two sets of two vibes, that's, you know, four people out there, you know, or in the tones, like at least one of the observers that I worked for the most, they, um, they liked to talk on the channel that the tones were going through. So the way that the system times everything. So, when a dynamite shot goes off, there has to be a timing for the exact millisecond that that dynamite shot goes off and the gear is recording. Yeah. So everything is like perfectly timed using the GPS satellites to like synchronize the times. And the way that that's all managed is that stuff is triggered with and communicated back and forth using tones over the radio. Wait, so so this is back in the cable days. Still now, now as well with the dynamite. Yeah, anything with dynamite now is uh, especially now because the timestamps have to be, um, what do you call it? Uh, synchronized. Yeah, they need to be synchronized between the dynamite shot and when, because the 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 nodes that are recording live right now, they're recording seven days a week. You need to find that recording. Oh right. You know what I mean? They're listening yeah. all day long. It, it, nothing could sit there and be like, okay, let's let's look at this all day long. Right, like, do you know what uh, seismic data looks like? Have you ever seen a um, a Richter scale with that thing going back and forth? And oh yeah, on the, the piece of paper. As the, yeah, as yeah. the as the volcanoes erupting or the earthquakes going off, it gets really crazy. Yeah, that's what all of our geophones are doing out there constantly. Constantly, yeah. And, and depending on the noise, there there's more movement, more really? energy going through. Yeah, and that gets turned into digital data. So then, what are you talking about when you were doing the troubleshooting mm-hmm. and? How would you blow a shot of dynamite? So when the system was live, all connected, there are areas of the spread that have like limited connections to them. Or for your receiver lines, each one has these cables running north-south. Remember how I kind of explained the square grid? So you've got these these lines running north-south. They're all attached by cable. Now you've got a blue cable running east-west connecting all those cables together and then going into the recorder. Now, if you unplug that blue cable from the recorder, everything on that side of the recorder is disconnected now. Zero. Zero on that one side, right? And the recorder could sit in the middle and have cables on both sides. So usually that's what would happen. You'd have like so much spread on either side of the recorder. But if something happens to that cable, anywhere past that cable is cut off. So like if you're not being careful on your sled and you've got say a metal runner that's sharp and you run over that blue cable halfway on the one side of the spread and cut it, 
just as a shot's going off, that you would have blown that shot. So shots are going on while you're troubleshooting. Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So you gotta be super careful driving your sled around all that equipment. So how do you coordinate when the shot goes off when you're troubleshooting? Well, there's a couple of things you could do. One is uh, the shots are triggered and timed using tones. And a lot of the observers that I worked for, we would talk on the same channel that the tones were going over. So you can hear them, right? When a dynamite shot is readied, there's a ready tone that gets transmitted. And then when the recorder is ready to fire it, it sends a firing tone and then that triggers the pack. And then after the shot's gone, a, uh, a return tone comes from the pack to the recorder. Can you so delay a sequence. A, Can you delay a shot? Not once you've got. Not once it's started. Really? Like once it's been triggered, it's it's going. Like, but it doesn't get triggered by you. It gets triggered by the person in the recorder, right? So when I send my when I'm shooting and I send my my ready tone, that shot's not going to go until the recorder goes. Yet we can take that shot and they basically click a button. What happens when you were saying you? Are disconnecting and connecting and you have to do it quickly mm-hmm. what made it so you have to do it quickly that's vibes because you don't want any downtime right for dynamite i would just say i gotta change this cable and they could you know they could do a quick change or a slow change whatever they feel like kind of oh. doesn't matter because dynamite they could shoot it as quickly as there's shots in front of them usually they'll run out of shots right and then have to wait and then they're cleaning up their holes and picking up the the, the remnants. Yeah, the garbage, the flagging in the trees, the lath in the ground, stuff like that. The shooting wire. There's a little yellow cable that comes out of the ground, very thin copper wire that comes out of the ground. It's attached to the dynamite shot. Minus 40, it's like frozen in there, but you hook up to that. That's how you uh, complete the circuit for the charge that sets off that dynamite. And when it's frozen in the ground, you clip it, break the lath off the top. They come back and clean it usually again in the spring, but... Well, yeah. what we do, our part of cleaning is to clip that and break it off. So there's nothing sharp coming out. Exactly. Nothing that's going to hurt animals or somebody coming up behind might trip over or hurt themselves on. Right. Yeah. So when it blows up, you're actually seeing it on surface? Generally, no. No, no. Usually when the dynamite's going off, it's uh, depending on the land, it can be very different what the dynamite's like. I've been on land where uh, the coolest shots I think I've had were is when the ground is kind of soft and it kind of rolls. You can hear the shock go off, and the ground kind of does a weird little roll underneath, like muskeg and stuff like that. It's pretty weird. You can see the ripple through the ground. Don't so much see it. You might if you were really looking closely, but you can certainly feel it. You can feel it. Yeah. Underneath you. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? Just kind of like you're kind of going up and down. Just a very, very little. Oh, sort of that little feeling of mm-hmm. the elevator just yeah, stopped. Exactly. Okay, yep. so that you can feel the roll, but you can't see it. Yeah, there might be some you could see, like if you're watching for it, you could certainly see like movement for sure. I just wouldn't call it like an exaggerated ripple or roll, but you can feel that like just the way it kind of goes underneath you. It's like, whoa. (laughs) And then there's, uh, I've been, I've been, I've taken shots where the ground is really hard and it almost feels like it's slapping your feet. It's got a crack to it. (laughs) Whoa. Just somebody hit the ground underneath. Yeah. Just a slap. Wow. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We do get them that come out though. We call those blowouts. If it hasn't been sealed properly or freshly, especially freshly drilled shots that haven't settled yet, they blow out quite a bit. Oh, because the ground isn't compact on top of it. Yeah, to exactly. Give it the exactly. And when they drill the shots in there, they put something inside called bentonite. Basically, with bentonite and water, it expands so it seals it up. And they don't always do it like well or properly, or sometimes it hasn't settled enough and it'll blow out. And then sometimes there's issues with the ground. 
Uh, I've shot shots that uh, that when they say drilled it and went to put the dynamite in, it kind of slipped and went sideways into the ground and they couldn't extract it. So sometimes you shoot shots that aren't 13 meters. I've shot shots that are only one meter deep and those tend to take the surface off the oh. off the top a little bit. Yeah. So it's directional the dynamite when you put it in i wouldn't say so it's just that's where the energy kind of blow like that's where the energy is going to escape from right like if it's a meter if it's on if it's in the ground a meter from the surface it's going in all directions but it's going to remove some of the land on top (laughs) as it comes up so you're trying to go 13 meters down yeah when they're drilling and they're trying to get it's uh, 13 is just kind of a like a, a baseline example, but it depends on the parameters, what they're looking for. Most of the dynamite I shot was 11 to 13 meters down. Some was six. So you shot as well? Oh yeah. I shot for years, a few years. Yeah. Four, five, four, five years. Yep. What do you have to do when you're shooting? Shooting is uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's not quite as say complex and mind fun as troubleshooting is troubleshooting is like a puzzle and you're trying to efficiently work your way through the through the grid and fix problems and then be delicate about it shooting is more like uh, shooting is almost like working on the line except that you got to be a little bit more responsible so when you're working on the line you're basically going straight down the line and you're getting everything ready to go uh dynamite is very similar to that you're you're going down the line and you're shooting shots oh it's just production mentality it's just production mentality boom, boom, exactly boom. and it's the same thing every time like when i go from shot to shot to shot to shot it's a very simple process i pull up i hit the gps on my pack to lock my gps location in i flick the gas on my machine to get it out of the way i snap my cables i got a uh, there's uh, two cables for shooting you've got your up hole we call it which is a cable with a geophone on the end of it that is the closest thing we have to an indication of that shot going if you're not sure right so it's a sensitive geophone that you put into the ground by your shot some of these shots are very quiet some of the land it's hard to tell sometimes there's other stuff going on you don't necessarily hear it or feel that shot but that up hole will tell you whether that shot went or not okay and the then up hole yeah so what is it that's what we call it. it's basically a geophone it's a geophone in every way yep. except that there's just the one and it plugs into our pack and what it does is when there is a shot that goes off in time with the radio tones, there is a sort of record there of a pulse that's created by that dynamite that goes off. That you can see on the screen in your pack. Yeah, exactly. And it, it'll give us a reading, right? Yeah. So I, I, I can't remember if it's in milliseconds or I think it's milliseconds. But yeah, you get uphole reading anywhere between like, say, six and... 50 but high numbers are usually not a good sign usually between 7 and 20 is like where you'd expect to see them and every shot that goes off you'll get an uphole reading when the return tone from the pack goes to the recorder that information gets picked up by the recorder as well so they have a record of it that so it they know off. that it went off exactly right and without there being a scope now you actually have no way of knowing if that shooter took that shot properly like you could go up to that you could go up to a shot i could not hook it up and hit send my ready tone and then he'll send a tone and then my my pack will will trigger nothing and send a tone back and, and that shot know. didn't go you'd never know so you need that uphole you need that uphole yeah as uh so who sets the dynamite in the hole uh that's a a whole other company that gets hired and pulled in before us so they're called seismic drillers okay. and they come in they got big trucks they're like tandems with uh with a fairly specific set of drills and then they've got helpers with them that come up with uh they've got quads 
Okay. So and it's already set up and you come with the mm-hmm. cables, you hook it up. Mm-hmm. That's right. How complex is it to hook it up? It's super easy, man. Yeah. Like I was saying before, I, I pull up to my shot, I hit the GPS, flick the throttle to get the machine by, pull my alcohol up, stick it in the ground, pull my, uh, my leads up. It's another red cable. We, we have what's called dog legs on the back of them. It's basically, there's two wires going down there and you want to, you want to create a circuit so that when you trigger it, you can put an electric pulse down it. So these dog legs are like anything metal and long that you can get in there and, and have it in comfortably so you can do it quick. These leads that coming out of the ground will be shunted. So they're wrapped together so that there's a circuit closed there. So you can't run a circuit through them. Prevents the shot from going off accidentally. I unshunt the wires, hook them up to my dog legs. Then I jump on my machine, drive 30 meters away, minimum 30 meters away, send my ready tone. How do you connect the wires together? Yep. So there's a little copper wire coming out of the end of the lead. And I got my metal dog leg, which is like a, there's two sort of long pins sticking out. And I basically take one wire, I hold it down and then I wrap it around two, three times. And then I do the same with the wire on the top, wrap it around two, three times. And then I set it gently on the ground. It's ready to go. Oh, mm-hmm. and if those wires touch together at that moment, what happens? If they touch, then you're going to get a short and it's not going to go. Oh, really? So you mm-hmm. need to keep them separate. That's right. Yeah. So when you when they're first there, they're shunted, so they're wrapped mm-hmm. together. Are, yes. Is it bare? The tips are bare? They're bare when I showed up, yeah. Okay. And that completes the circuit so that you can't add anything extra to it to yeah, blow it up. Yeah. So what's happened there is essentially the um, blasting cap attached to the dynamite is short-circuited now. So you can't, yeah, you can't get anything through it. You need to attach it to another circuit. So to do that, you have to unshunt it and then yeah. attach it at two separate points. And then you have to send power to it yes. to blow up that blasting cap. That's right. Yeah. We've, so we've got dynamite packs attached to a battery. We've got a couple of little, they're like little car batteries, essentially. They're set up for, for shooting. They've got specific like cables spliced on there that go into the pack. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So then you just clip everything together, make mm-hmm. sure your up hole is there. Yeah. And then... You drive minimum 30 meters. Mm-hmm. How do you set it off? So I would get off my machine. I'm always looking at the shot. I personally always put my foot on the ground because I don't like being that shooter that says, I don't know if that shot went. Check any check. Or, or hey, Brandon, did that shot go? Uh, no, I always knew. I always knew when my shot went off. Brandon, did your shot go? Yes, I feel it. I put my foot on the ground every time. Shut my machine off. I can hear it. So anyways, get off my machine. I look back, put a foot on the ground, and then there's two switches, basically. You got to squeeze them into each other. When you squeeze them in, it sends a ready tone to the observer sitting in the recorder. And when he gets that ready tone, it pops up on his screen. And it shows you, because I sent a GPS, what shot you're currently hooked up to. And then he'll check, oh, that's on the spread. Okay, that's on the spread. Okay, sends a signal back to my pack, blows the shot. Well, he'll send the signal. Yep. But you're there responsible for holding those two together. That's right. He'll see it if the ready tone is through all of the geophones. Uh, that he's not, he's not going to see now because like I said, it's not live right back in the day when it was live, he could, yeah, he could, if, if there was a problem with the spread, he could say, you know, disarm. Okay. But now with that ready tone, it just tells them there's a blip there and there's going to be an explosion right after that ready tone mm-hmm. it says hey i'm ready to shoot as soon as you're ready to shoot me i'm ready to go <laughs> yeah. but it's it's easy mentally you could just oh, meditate yeah. yeah oh yeah this yeah yeah like it's a bit nerve-wracking at first because there's a lot of things that can go wrong and there's a safety aspect to it too but if you're 30 meters away like it's it's ample distance and if you're doing it properly there's no reason not to do it properly like there's people that 
cheat. We call it short lining. They want to get higher production. It's easier. It's quicker. But you put yourself at a lot of risk. And if you get caught, then you get in a lot of trouble. What's short lining? So we need to be a minimum 30 meters away from that shot. I could wrap up half my line and shoot it from 15 meters away instead or 10 meters away instead. It's quicker. But they think you're using the 30 meter. They Yeah, they don't know. Unless somebody's up there watching you, you don't know. You're, you're, you're in the bush, ways <laughs> away from anybody. So what can go wrong? Well, that shot could blow out and hit you. Something could hit you. Yeah, there was actually somebody years ago who was standing almost right on the hole and it was almost near the surface. It took his legs out. So just because an incident happened didn't mean that there was no risk. Oh yeah, 100% there is there is risk. In fact, I've been on plenty of jobs where if people were standing, I've taken plenty of shots where if somebody was standing on the hole or too close to it, they could be injured for sure. You are actually the definition of integrity on that job. You have to. Because it yeah. is what you do when nobody's watching you. Exactly, yep. Well, Brandon, what's the best location you've been to? Oh, that's a hard one to answer. I'd say I've got three favorites that stick out into my mind. My first favorite, I was a troubleshooter back then. It was my second season. We went to Eagle Plains, Yukon Territory. We worked up there for about a month in the spring. Now, when I say spring, it was spring everywhere else, but it wasn't spring up there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a very cool experience going up to the Yukon. We were 30 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle for that job. It was a huge job with huge parameters. I mean, the lines were half a kilometer apart, each line. And then the stations were 80 meters apart. So you want to talk about sledding? You have no idea how many thousands of kilometers I put on a sled that month. So 500 meters between. Between lines, yeah. So like if we were doing three or four lines, normally we do more. But on that job, I think we were only flipping two or three lines in a day which isn't a lot, but just such a huge job. Like that's all we could do. So I got to do a lot of sledding, (laughs) a lot of riding. And you got paid just the same. Yep. And then what's the second location then? Okay. There was an area not too far from Wanawan where we were working and the landscape there was interesting. It was kind of brutal. Lots of steep ledges, lots of ups and downs, rough terrain, bush. Um, one-on-one do you know where one-on-one is it's northwest uh dawson creek bc yeah so dawson creek bc is right near the border of bc and alberta and northwest there's a highway that goes out to alaska you follow that highway up for a bit one-on-one's up that way so there's some i wouldn't say mountains per se but you're starting to get into hills one-on-one we did a uh, 3D there, a very fun 3D, which I was shooting on, and it was a mess. The landscape was so brutal. There was no, like, you know, normally we would do, like, if we were shooting, we'd have an area, and we would shoot, like, say, four or eight shots, and then if you're swinging, say, I shoot four shots going north, then I swing east, shoot four shots going south, swing east, four shots going north, swing east. That's me covering my section. There was none of that on this job. This job was such a mess. The landscape was so brutal. It was so hard getting around. It was like, Brian, I need you to go here and take eight shots. And then give me a call. So I'd go up, take eight shots and roll. And you'd be like looking at a map trying to figure out how to get to the next spot. Because it was thick bush with lots of hills and lots of steep and rough terrain. It was hard getting around. So that 3D was fun to begin with. And on that job, there was a 2D, which is, uh, it's exploratory. So 3D is like, like I was saying, a square grid. They want to do an ultrasound. They're going to get a clear picture of the underground at the end of that project. A 2D is like a few lines in an area where they just want to get an idea of what's there to see if it's worth investing in a 
larger project. So we did a 2D south of where we were working. There was no road access. So we got flown in by helicopter. And my partner was pretty green. I think it was his first or second season then. So I got to take this kid out with me in a helicopter, about 15 minute flight from where we were our main area of work out to this beautiful valley. Probably only sees people in the summertime because I, re- I imagine hikers and campers and stuff like that go out there, right? But just like way, way out there. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful landscape and a cool helicopter ride too because the, the hills were getting pretty big out there and there was the big valley. Uh, the, the pilot, I'll never forget the pilot. Kelly was his name. When we got in, he was like, I'm going to give you guys a heads up right now. There's wind coming off this one hill that we're flying into and it's pretty rough. So hang on, like you guys ain't going to puke or nothing or any kind of thing. Like, oh, no, it'll be okay. And I remember actually, like I've been up in the helicopter a few times. I've flown out for shooting before and for troubleshooting, mostly troubleshooting. And I've never, never felt nervous or anything ever. But uh, I never flown with Kelly before either. So I didn't really know what he was like. But here we are and the helicopter is, it's like, rolling all over the place left right forward back like you're, you're just getting slammed around by this wind and you could see like a piloting a helicopter is like pretty intense in that kind of wind right they got the uh, a lever on one side which is like up and down and then they got their pedals for like left and right and they got they got a stick which is their cyclical for all directions so you can see him like hammering the pedal on one side hammering the pedal on the other and he's moving the lever and he's using like he's just and I look over and I never seen such a look of concentration on somebody's face before in my life. And I'm like, this is the pilot. I'm like a few hundred feet off the ground here. I'm like getting nervous now. Like, uh, if something was wrong, he's going to tell me, right? Like, cause I looked over and he was like, he was, he was like, like just, 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 just pure oh concentration. My. Oh man. Couldn't say a word. Oh to yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think I thought might just be how he was. So I remember getting a little bit nervous, but no, he brought us in there. He dropped us off at this nice little, there was kind of a river going through, but it was frozen. He dropped us off on a nice little ledge before the hill we had to go into. It was a nice little clearing going into this valley. It was really cool. <laughs> but you're glad you had a competent helicopter. Pilot. Oh yeah. 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 It was, uh, I'll never forget that ride. Oh, man. And then what was the third location? The third location was uh, Red Lake, Ontario. And uh, my favorite for a few reasons. Uh, It was probably one of the worst summer jobs I ever did. Usually when they're clearing out bush and forest, they cut the lines and they clear them really well. I don't know what happened there. Have you been to northern Ontario? Have you seen any images of it? It is like thick bush there it is like most of the landscape around there is thick forest so red lake is like kind of frontiersy it's like probably the one of the northernmost towns you can go to in northern ontario thick bush and like lots of hard rock coming out of the ground it's very rough landscapes hard to get around so here we are out in red lake doing 2d so there's not a lot of access and the lines that they cut weren't really cut they more like bulldozed them over but the trails were like it was just like folded over trees that we were driving over and it was a utv job so we had utvs with tracks and they're just getting stuck everywhere and like to act like there was one line that we were working on i bet you it was 250 meters from the one end of the line to the highway but to access it you had to go down the highway down into another line over and around it was like and because of how messed up the trails were it was like 
I shit you not, it was about two hours to go in, just to go in. To get 250 meters in. Well, you had because it got all the way, way around. Exactly. Yeah. You could have walked in, but there's no way you're going to carry gear through <laughs> that thick bush, right? Folded there's over trees yeah, and everything. Yeah. Well, and, and, and like that's the trails, right? Like the 250 meters from the highway is untouched wilderness, right? Like you ain't walking through that for sure. Yeah. So probably two, two and a half hours to a five hour round trip. For sure. So there was people that were shuttling gear and we had no helicopter for this job. So there's people shuttling in gear and they would literally do two trips and that was their day. And uh, I troubleshot that job and then I shot that job. That job, because it's all rock up there in Ontario. So I mentioned before that a lot of the shots I'd taken were 13 meters, 11, 13 meters roughly. A lot of those two are a quarter kg, some half kgs. So at 13 meters. Yeah normally would be a quarter kilogram of dynamite in the ground. Okay. Maybe a half kilogram of dynamite in the ground. Okay. It was enough energy. On that Red Lake job, in solid rock, they could only drill about a meter in. And they put a kilogram of dynamite in every hole. So this is rock, one kg at one meter. Uh, it was the most terrifying shooting I have ever done. These shots exploded, every single one of them. Like shotguns, rock, like boom, they were exploding. And like we were minimum 30 meters, right? But stuff was landing way back, chunks of rocks flying out at you all around. Yeah. And and me and the other shooter talked about it. We were like, man, should we get like 50 meter lines or what? And we did, we decided that that would be too unsafe. There was a time where I was two to 300 meters behind him and there was rocks hitting close to where I was that far away. Like these things were getting launched into the ground. So it was like 50 meters. No, we just, we're not going to see the shots if we're that far away. Right. We felt safer being closer to the shots because you could see the rocks go up and you could dodge them if you had to. But if you're far enough into the, you know, if you're far enough back, you can't see them. Like you don't know. So these shots were, it was like, we ended up getting three shooters at one point and there was one point where all three of us were close together and it sounded like world war these freaking shots going off all <gasps> over the bush they were exploding they were loud oh between me and the other shooter i believe it was i one of us shot three and they're shot four so when they're loading the dynamite into the ground they use loading poles and they, they're these like wooden poles with metal they got like metal braces on them and they clip together so you can go deep. Like an actual pole is four feet or something like that. And then you can attach them together. So if you need to go down, you know, multiple meters, you attach a bunch together as you're going down, you get your dynamite in there and then you pull them up one at a time while well, you pull them up all together, but you detach them. Yeah. Anyways, between the two of us, we shot seven loading poles out of holes on that job. So the loading I, pole got stuck got in the stuck in, Yeah, and those things coming out of there, man, <sighs> it was like the sound that it made was like uh, like a high-pitched whine. Like, and these things would go like 400 feet in the air. They'd you pretty go much up made a, and up and up and up. You made a cannon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a heck of a cat, like a spear gun from hell. Like, oh, man. Oh, yeah. And these things would go up and up and up and like 400 feet. I'm not even kidding you. Like the rocks were only going up like 50 feet, maybe 100. But the, these loading poles. What do you mean maybe so, 50? 50 feet still pretty high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's high enough. Yeah, high enough to, to get some distance. Yeah. These loading poles were like, you would watch it go up and you'd just be like, wow, that's still going up. Still going up. Anyways, it, hit, it would go to the, it would reach its peak and then come down. And they're not like aerodynamic right so they're like it's coming down now and it's like flitting from side to side tumbling spinning around but you can't you don't know where it's going to come down until like the last 100 feet or something like that so you're just watching this thing change directions all over until finally it comes down like a spear straight into the ground 
It's crazy. I felt nervous like when it's like tumbling through the air and you're not sure what it's going to do. But as soon as it straightens out and comes down, then you're like, okay, it's good. He had one. He said it landed like 20 feet away from him. He kept it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that I couldn't t- find any of mine. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are the three memorable locations you've been to? Yep. What's the worst location then? The worst location actually was probably the last job that I did. We were working uh, Eastern Manitoba. Anyways, right by the border. Um, there's like a huge valley there. Like massive. The job went right through this valley. And it was wintertime. And there was a river, like kind of multiple rivers, but mostly like a small, almost like a creek more than a river. But it between the huge valley and this creek running through the job, it was a mess. And we our job went right down into it through the bottom of it and then right up the other side. And, uh, well, we've been using machines for quite a while for a lot of the work that we do. And I only recently started working out and training back into shape and stuff again. So we all hit this job near the end of the season. It was supposed to take, I want to say they, they wanted it to be two and a half weeks or something like that, this job. But Right before we got there, it dumped a bunch of snow and a bunch of snow and a bunch of snow and a bunch of snow. So before we even got there, like the ledges of this job were chest deep snow on the tops of the valley to get over, to get down into the valley. And then the edges of the valley on both sides were so steep, it all had to be done on foot. So all the shooting, all of the layout, all of the troubleshooting, everything on on foot. So it was like (laughs) this job that was supposed to take us two and a half weeks took us probably a month and a half. I want to say it took us almost six weeks. So triple the, a lot of time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was insane because of how much stuff we had to do on foot that and the weather conditions, like the amount of snow, there was a bunch of snow before we got there. And then it snowed again after we put a whole bunch of the gear down. So like picking up a bunch of the gear was a huge pain in the ass. Cause it's all buried. And then that cool, like the, I don't remember if it was a coolie or value, whatever you want to call it, but it was massive. It took us forever to get through and up the other side. And there was, um, a bunch of us shooters got pulled off of that job to go do a couple of smaller jobs in the meantime. And then some people got pulled off to another job. Like it ended up taking so long that we, we were also kind of getting fragmented through this job. So it was just the job that like, by the end of it, we, we were like, we all want to get the fuck out it's of this. It's the job that broke, <laughs> oh, broke yeah. everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely. When you showed up and you saw the conditions, what went through your mind? Well, when I first came up the one side, I was like, woo wicked i got some really nice photographs you know what i mean and you know you feel like when you when you work in that stuff every day you feel it feels like pretty hardcore too you're like i'm about to go down the face of this cliff here and go to the bottom and then you know you get to the you get to the creek or the river and you're like mm, yeah i'm just gonna walk over that you know and you're climbing up the ledges like that one of the creeks is like a 14 foot ledge or something like that so you're like digging in your boots to get in the snow and you get to the top and you're climbing up like probably didn't need to do that but if you can you know what do you guys got for safety gear uh steel toe no not even steel toe boots um i personally wore dunlops they're like rubbers that are fairly well insulated you put on some bombas with uh wool socks and they're pretty warm but the safety vest climbing helmet and safety glasses Man, that's minimal for what you're in. Yeah. Well, and depending on too, like obviously, yeah, for quad sleds, UTVs, we got to wear the 
proper helmet for that. You got to yeah. wear like a DOT approved helmet. Hey, what are you wearing on your hands when you're working in these negative 35 conditions to be dexterous? Oh, see, that's an interest. That's a very interesting question. So when shooting dynamite, we wear these gloves called tidy whiteies. You ever been by in the gardening section? You see those like white, those white, uh, thin gloves, those thin. Yeah. Yeah. Those. Yeah. Yeah. Wear double, you double up in those. They work in negative 35. Only when you're, only when you're giving her. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Heartbeats 110 most of the day. Otherwise your hands are freezing. I would have, um, I do have like when I was out shooting, I would have big like gauntlet style mitts that I would wear over top of that for when I'm on the machine going from, you know, driving around the job, bought shooting dynamite. Yeah. To get that little lead, that little copper wire onto the, onto the dog legs. Yeah. I'd have to use those thin white gloves. Yeah, minus 30, minus 35. So you actually have to really manage your output. Absolutely, yeah. You don't want to be going so fast that you're like drenched in sweat and you have to be going fast enough that you don't freeze. You have to maintain an equilibrium. When it's really cold, like minus 35 or colder, they'll usually set up trucks in general areas that people can go to as needed. Okay, as a warm-up station? Absolutely, yeah. So this, there is safety around? Absolutely, yeah. For temperatures that cold, yeah. On her hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get through the roughest days? I don't know. The roughest days for me were only in the first couple of years when I never knew how to manage that well. Right. When I, after a few years of figuring it out and getting good at it, I never really had hard days, right? Like a hard day for me might be, might meant that I was working harder, like climbing through a valley or, you know, going up and down hills and stuff like that. Right. But that to me was like harder work. I'm not trying to punch the same numbers because I'm working harder to get those numbers. And the person I'm working for understands that if I'm used to, you know, shooting 150 shots in a day and I got to shoot 150 shots in the mountains or if I got to shoot in the mountains it's not going to be 150 it's only going to be you know 60 or 70 or you get what you get that's that was my, my so old... you'll adjust your expectations for the conditions absolutely yeah 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 so you know you work you give it as you give as much as you can right for me it was always 80 percent if I gave it 80 percent all day long yeah, but that gives it so you can return the next day. Exactly. You gave a hundred. Oh man. You can't. Yeah, you can't do it. <laughs> I honestly, my first, my first few years in seismic, I gave it a hundred percent. My first day, my first couple of years working with the cable systems there, I was starting to get like nerve damage because of working too hard. People become diehard cablers because it's a job that you can do and you can look around while you're doing the cables, right? You could daydream and check out the landscape. You know, not all the jobs you can do that with. So. It's a fun job, but if you go too hard, too fast, especially picking up cables, there's a lot of arms over the head because when you pick up the cable, you wrap it around, like you use your head, you use your arm as a base and you wrap the cable around your neck, essentially. Like it's not tight, it's loose, but you wrap it around your neck. And then when you get enough cable there, you start whipping it over the back of your head. I remember the one day when I first felt it and then it carried on, I started to get like pins and needles from like my elbow down. And at first I thought it was because my clothes were too tight. I thought I was cutting off the circulation. So I'd like shake my arms out. And then, you know, for a while I thought it was, you know, I'm cutting off the circulation. My hands are getting cold. So I'd work faster or harder. And eventually it goes away, right? Cause you're working it out and then it goes away and you're good to go. And dealing with it incorrectly like that made it so much worse to the point where I couldn't lay down. I, I stopped being able to lay down without my arms going numb. So I was like sleeping, sitting up and I never, you know, I pride you know, I don't want to tell the bosses. I don't want to get laid off or let go or made fun of or whatever, right? So I ignored it. And um, eventually I figured out that it was a nerve thing. 
and I started to slow down, started to figure out what it was and, you know, work with my elbows down, stop, you know. Yeah, you're in the, you're a better position. Though. Yeah, yeah. I started working on my ergonomics a lot better and then also not working so hard, you know, hard enough, putting it on his day, but not killing yourself day to day to day, right? What's That's the how big, I figured that out. What's the biggest lesson that these jobs have taught you? That was the biggest lesson right there. It was uh, if you're going to run a marathon, you know, don't don't sprint, right? <laughs> Understand Take, that it's a marathon. Exactly, right? And life's kind of like that. If you got anything you want to do, like uh, I've recently started training in jujitsu and I'm back in the gym and stuff like that. And, you know, I like to give her. I'm like, a, I get into the moment and I like to go, go, go. But you can't do that day in, day out, right? Your joints can only handle so much. Your body can only handle so much. Even your mind can only handle so much. You got to take it back. You got to take rests. You got to take your breaks. And you got to, you know, you got to, you got to maintain. Yeah. And allow yourself to go gradually. Is that 100%? Gotcha. Yeah, that was the biggest thing. That and uh, managing managing stress and expectations was another big one for me. Oh, so how do you manage the stress and expectations? Well, I um I used to overthink my situation in the workplace a lot, a little bit uh, neurotic, I guess you could say, worrying about, you know, when I was killing myself out there, I was worried about not working hard enough. And eventually I realized like, ridiculous, man, slow down. Don't kill yourself for any corporation. You know, you're making people money as long as people keep making money. And as long as you've got integrity and you're doing your day's work, like that's all you need to do. Anything beyond that isn't, it's not in your control. If I got to call in sick to my job and everything falls apart because I had to take a sick day, that's not my fault. Somebody else made a mistake that gets paid more than I do. And that's their problem. Right. I figured out those kinds of things. You didn't shoulder that unnecessary responsibility. Yeah. yeah. I started to slough that off after a while. Hell yeah. How did you learn that? Um, well, my dad worked in the industry as well. I think I mentioned that. Yeah. And we were actually put on the same cruise multiple times. I worked with him quite a bit and I learned a lot of that through him. Like, you know, having a beer with the old man after <laughs> a hard day's work, talking about my day. And then he helped me deal with a lot of those insecurities and being unsure just sort of be, he's been in the game a long time. He's well respected. He's well known. Uh, he's one of the best, probably in the world, at the job that he does. So I he can't could help mentor but, you. You knew to take he, the qualified he advice. He absolutely did. Yeah, and it took me, like I said, a few years, you know, to get there. But eventually, I did, and I owe a lot of that to him. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, Matt. Well, should we call it? Sure.